Hello, 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 and welcome to the 13th and final episode of Mixed Media Reviews Season 2. My name is Kelsey, and today I'm going to be talking about a lot of things to wrap up this season. This week I'll be discussing two books, two TV shows, and two movies. It's going to be a long episode, but I'm just going to embrace it since it's the season finale. Much like past episodes with more than one item, uh, I'll be breaking this episode up by each individual title instead, starting with the books, then moving to TV shows, and finally I'll be talking about the movies. So let's start with Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. I think the summary from the dust jacket, which I hadn't actually even read, uh, of course, until now, gives a little bit too much away, so instead I'm just going to read the last paragraph. Daughter of the Moon Goddess begins an enchanting romantic duology that weaves ancient uh, Chinese mythology into a sweeping adventure of immortals and magic, of loss and sacrifice, where love vies with honor, dreams are fraught with betrayal, and hope emerges triumphant. A beautiful little summary, even though it's only a few sentences. Basically, this story follows Jing Yin, who is the daughter of the moon goddess, and she's on a quest to save her mother. This book I knew about once again because I saw it all over the internet, and let me tell you, it was phenomenal and certainly lived up to the hype. Oh my goodness. Uh, Tan's writing is incredibly gorgeous, and it really matches with the book just so well. I think a lot of authors fall into the trap of trying to make their writing seem more eloquent by kind of like including lots of metaphors or similes that are kind of supposed to somehow be tied to the story. I've seen it done where someone was, you know, into movies and so every single thing that they looked at and saw, like they related it to movies and it was just like, okay, chill. Um and then they just kind of use like overly flowery language and it always just makes it feel like they're trying too hard. While Tan does utilize metaphors, she also uses language to her advantage. You can tell that she chose each word with care. Her words echo the feeling of the book with its mythology and its otherworldly setting. She picks adjectives that are, you know, adding beauty without the effort. Here's a sentence where I think she does really well with it, and it's really something she does quite often, so I could have picked many sentences as this example. Gripped by anxiety before, all I could recall was a blurred haze of vibrant color and exquisite beauty. I know it's just a small sentence, but the insertion of these dynamic and vivid adjectives they really help to elevate the writing, and it makes it feel like it's centuries old while still being modern enough to understand easily, if that makes sense. Um, and it really just fits the tone of the book so per- perfectly that it just kind of helps further your immersion into the story. I, her writing really took my breath away, and it felt so flawless, it felt so realistic that it just made the story that much more real to me. Uh, She did such a good job. Uh, I also really liked all the characters of this book. I didn't always agree with Jing Yin's choices, but I felt that they were always in character as she was trying to kind of find her way back to home and a way to free her mother, the moon goddess. I also really liked the way Tan transformed the myth of, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, I watched a video, um, Hoi and Chunga into something that made you feel both like you felt for both of them 
Um, and it didn't just make the woman the vil- villain of the story, like I think um, one of the more widely believed myths is. So I really loved the way she incorporated everything. I thought the way she introduced all of these characters, both the ones from mythology and her original characters, I think she did a great job intertwining them, intertwining them with the story, um, and it was just really well done. I don't really have any critiques of this book. It's kind of between YA and adult, though I don't think it reads very YA at all. I'm still honestly quite stunned that this is Sue Lin Tan's uh, debut novel because it's just amazing and I feel like it's been written from like a very seasoned author. Um, and the next book, Heart of the Sun Warrior, comes out in November, either the 10th or 15th, depending on which country you're in. And I am so excited for it because I am sure it'll just be that much better. And last thing I want to mention was just the cover. <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous and it's ultimately what had got me get, um, had, whoa, I can't even, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so in love with this book, I can't even speak. Um, the cover is ultimately what got me to buy it. I bought it at Comic-Con um, and I saw it, I was looking for a different book and I came across it and... I finally just was like, you know what, I'm going to buy it because it really does have a beautiful cover. And again, I am looking forward to The Heart of the Sun Warrior, the second book, which comes out, thankfully, in just a couple weeks. Next up is This Poison Heart by Kaylin Bayron. I read it on my Kindle that my husband uh, actually gifted me for our honeymoon slash for my birthday because they overlapped. Um, and it was really nice, actually, because... I really, <laughs> it took me forever to finally go to a Kindle because I love having a physical copy. I love reading it and putting it on that red shelf of mine and just looking at all my beautiful books, you know? Um, but it was so much more convenient to carry that around, especially on a vacation like that, than having, I still brought two physical books, but having that option of just bringing a Kindle when we were traveling, like on a bus day trip somewhere was really nice because it's such a lighter option <laughs> than an actual book, especially nowadays that books seem to be super long and, you know, I get them in hardcover a lot of the time when they first come out. So Kindle was very nice. Right off the bat, I just want to say that I have watched and listened to a bunch of different videos trying to figure out how to pronounce the main character's name, which is a name from the Greek mythology. And like every video I <laughs> I um, listen to, they're different. I pronounce it in my head, Brisees, I think I said a lot of the time, or just kind of went with Brie, even if it wasn't shortened as Brie at the time in the book. Um, I've watched videos that called it her um, Briseis, Briseis, I don't even know. So I'm just going to call her Briseis for the remaining, and if that's completely wrong, just let me know. Um, but yeah, and I'll probably actually say multiple different ways, but we'll try to go with Brissies. I think that's what I said. Anyway, uh, the summary for this Poison Heart is as follows. Brissies has a gift. With a single touch, she can grow plants from tiny seeds to rich blooms. When Bree's aunt dies and wills her a dilapidated estate in rural New York, Bree and her parents hope that, surrounded by plants and flowers, she will finally learn to control her gift. But their new home is sinister, in ways they never expected. It comes with a mysterious set of instructions, a walled garden filled with the deadliest botanicals in the world, 
and generations of secrets. There is more to Bree's sudden inheritance than she could have imagined, and she is determined to uncover it. I thought Bree, well, again, having a very difficult name to pronounce, and again, I, I well, not again, I don't know, I, I don't really know much of Greek mythology outside of Percy Jackson and, like, Greek architecture, um, so I hadn't even heard of her name before, but besides that, uh, I thought Brie was a really good character. Her fear of hurting her parents with her power and those she loves, and also kind of just being discovered, you know, her desire to be normal, her struggle with being adopted, um, not necessarily being adopted, but finding out more about her birth family and feeling guilt from wanting to know more while also still loving and feeling like her moms are her real parents. Um, I think all of that together made a really good three-dimensional character, a really compelling character. Uh, some of the things that she did, much like Jing Yin uh, in the last book, I wasn't quite a fan of, but to be fair, she is a teenager. This is a YA book, and it made sense for the most part to make her, those decisions that she did. Um, but again, overall, I think she was a very compelling character, and I really liked the way she was able to navigate the world and kind of was finding out more about herself as the story went on. I also really liked her parents. I thought they had a pretty prevalent storyline for being in a YA book, uh, where normally they just completely forget that parents and most adults exist. So I loved that this book really kind of included them in the story and made it a part of Bree's kind of struggle with her powers, with finding out all this new information. And I really liked that they didn't really just cast them aside. Uh, I really liked the two friends that she makes as well, Carter and Marie. They are pretty good characters and I think they added a lot of intrigue to the story. I also really liked just this book in general. <laughs> I love a good urban fantasy and this one really hits the mark. At first I was a little bit confused, but I think that makes sense since, you know, Brie was also very confused. Uh, it was nice to kind of discover the world with her instead of having kind of a bunch of explanation up front, uh, which is usually kind of typical of these kinds of books, books like Lore or even Twilight to a degree where you kind of get a bunch of information up front and then you kind of just get little bits as you go. You kind of get told what kind of story this is and what kind of world uh, you're getting thrust into. You know, with Twilight we were told this is going to be very much a vampire thing and then with lore you get, oh this is all the Greek mythology and all of that kind of, you know, information up front. Even things like Harry Potter, which is more actual fantasy, you know, you get kind of told that you're in this magical world. But with this book, it was kind of the opposite, and it almost made it feel like it was a normal fiction book for quite a bit before you really got into maybe the middle and especially the end, and then you really get to find out kind of the world that she's in, which I thought was really interesting, and not something that's necessarily done very often. Um, I know I've seen some critiques that they thought that the book was really slow at first, but while I kind of agree, I think the way it picks up and you find out a bit more information and how it kind of snowballs, I actually kind of really enjoyed it. Again, I wasn't really quite into it at first, but let me tell you, when this book picks up, it really picks up, and I was all for all of the discoveries that Brie was making. 
One time where I think this kind of did fail though was when we finally got an explanation for her second mom being called Mo. Or I don't even, I think it's Mo. I wasn't sure if that was her name or not. And I was like, why is she just calling her name? And maybe that's just a thing that they decided. I don't know. Um, and it wasn't until quite a way in I returned the book on my e-reader. So I can't double check uh, when exactly. But I think it wasn't until the middle or maybe two-thirds the way into the book uh, that we find out that Mo is just short for mom which definitely makes sense, but that might have been nice to know closer to the front. It's a very little thing, and it's really nothing in the grand scheme of things, but it's just something that stuck out to me of maybe taking the... finding out information much later into the book a little too far, you know? There is... okay, there is a second thing that I also didn't like, uh, and it's a thing that happens a lot in, I think, especially paranormal types of fantasies, and this is probably a pretty big spoiler in certain regards, so be warned. Um, but I really hate the I'm a 300-year-old blank, and I know you're 17, but like my body is 17, so it's cool if we date, right? Trope? Like, it's, it's the worst, <laughs> and it's creepy. And, you know, I'll give the Crave series some credit here when Tracy Wolf addresses it by saying that that the vampire doesn't age in the same way, so he is kind of closer to being 17 than being 200, although she doesn't actually go into how that works until I was actually just listening to court today, and she did kind of talk about something that happens to them for the first, like, 100 or so years or something, and I was like, is that what she meant? Because then he's still technically, like, 80 years old, so I don't know, but it was an attempt to explain it away and at least call it out for what it is. Creepy. Um, but again, this book kind of felt like it was totally okay that there's this huge age gap and does not try to explain in any way anything about how it's not actually creepy and, you know, to make me feel like it's not actually creepy. And instead, I just felt like it was a bit creepy. And again, no one freaking mentions it. I mean, like, if I found out I was dating someone who I thought was 17 and then they were like, oh, I'm 200 years old, I'd be like, um, get the frick away from me. <laughs> what do you mean you're 200 years old? Like, I've always wondered, this is a tangent, and I'm sorry that this is just going to add time, but like, if you're a vampire and you get vampired at 17, you live another 100 years, are you 117 or are you still 17? Like, does the vampire thing, obviously you're not growing anymore, right? Like, the whole like, they're like a Barbie. If you cut the hair, it won't grow back kind of a thing because they're dead. Although, when your hair grows when you die, right? So, maybe that's not quite true. But you're dead, so the blood technically isn't pumping, right? So, technically, you know, blood's not going to be gushing everywhere when they get their head chopped off. And they, they can't breathe. Like, none of their functions are working. They can't, they do heal, but that's not, that's like a supernatural thing, right? And that's not like your body healing, so, like, does their brain no longer age? Because if that's the case, then having a 17-year-old vampire in 100 years, they still would kind of be 17, right? Because they'd still have the brain of a 17-year-old. Even though they've had life experience, they can't form those same synapses or whatever happens to, like, a matured brain. Anyway, 
completely different. There's not even vampires in this book. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh no, is that a spoiler? Who knows? Anyway, back on the book. Um, uh, okay, there is a third thing. Uh, and while I'm here, I might as well just mention it. At one point, Marie tells Brie that the Ubers there aren't safe. So I thought that meant that when she does finally take an Uber, that it would, like, end really badly. But it doesn't. And I was just really confused about why that was even brought up. Unless I missed something or some kind of other point that she was trying to make. I'm not sure. I just remember her saying it was bad. But then nothing happened when she did order an Uber. And she didn't, like, say anything about it. Like, hey, I took an Uber and I was totally fine. Was she totally fine? Pretty sure she was. Uh, anyway, the second book, This Wicked Fate, is already out, actually. I think it came out in June of this year. Um, but it's not on Libby yet that I could see when I was trying to look. Um, so I might wait until I can get it on there. I'm gonna do some research later and see if it's coming to a library near me or not. Or I may just buy it on my Kindle. Uh, it kind of just depends on how patient I can be. And if I, you know, have money. <laughs> Okay, TV shows. Let's talk about TV shows. And let's start with She-Hulk. Do I need to add a summary for this? Really, it's just about Jennifer Walters, who's a lawyer and the cousin of the Hulk, who ends up getting Hulk powers and doing Hulk stuff. So you're pretty standard show. Um, I really, really loved (laughs) She-Hulk. I loved, loved, loved it. Tatiana Maslany was incredible in Orphan Black, and I swear that one day I'll finish that show. And so I was really excited to see her in this, and she did not disappoint. She was terrific. (laughs) And let me just say that the criticism I see about the show is mostly pretty much all baloney. This isn't a serious show like most of the Marvel ones have been before it. This is She-Hulk, and it's very much like the comics, and very much the precursor to Deadpool, since she had the breaking the wall thing before he did. Um, And She-Hulk isn't billed as like an action or like a superhero movie. It's, as Jennifer Walter states many times, a legal drama. But really, it's a sitcom. It is 100% a sitcom, and it is filmed like a sitcom. And it just has a hint of wit and a sprinkling of emotional outreach to the viewer in the form of breaking the fourth wall. So to act like it needs to be more serious or that it's too snarky or something is just completely missing the point because that's literally what it is. Like you wouldn't go to a Deadpool movie and be like, he spoke to the camera and also was like just never taking anything seriously. And it was so dumb. Like, what did you expect? It's Deadpool. That's literally who he is. Like, his nickname is Merc with a Mouth. So, of course, She-Hulk is also very witty. She's very much, I'm talking to the viewer, and she's very much a funny comic. So, what were you expecting? <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so the opening to the show was amazing, and it honestly set the tone for the entire show. Um her her kind of line of you don't care about all this lost stuff let me just show you the other stuff real quick she's constantly trying to kind of bring it back to the legal stuff throughout the show which really comes full circle in that final episode but she's also very much aware that people are here for superhero stuff but she's here for the lawyer stuff and i really like that that's pretty much every single episode (laughs) 
I know a lot of people were probably upset uh, about She-Hulk being able to kind of manage her Hulk side much easier and faster than Bruce did, but honestly, I think it just makes sense uh, for all the reasons that she stated, really. For constantly being aware of how others perceive you, for constantly walking that line, especially in her professional world, of being a confident woman, of being confident in her knowledge without also being, you know, the B-word, of being a leader but not being seen as too controlling, of having the right number of exclamation points in an email so I seem friendly and not over-friendly, which is, you know, another word for crazy, or me, which is, again, another word for the B-word. Okay, so maybe that last one was more of a me thing, but I have certainly talked to other women who do the same thing about going through and making sure that there's at least some sentences without an exclamation point. Um, but yeah, attending meetings where I'm the only woman in them can be quite uncomfortable, uh, so I totally get it as a woman in a field that is predominantly men. I have certainly been in those situations where I've been talked down to or treated like I must either be an assistant or, in my case, an interior designer and not an architect. Even though I'm not an architect, I'm not saying I am, I still have four exams, I'm aware. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I get biting your tongue for the sake of not making everyone else uncomfortable while you are completely uncomfortable. I get knowing that if you say something, they'll think you're just being emotional and they'll make it a big deal and you're just trying to tell them that you don't like it. <laughs> I get that. Uh, so of course she's better at controlling her emotions and understanding what it's like to constantly be angry, which is Bruce's, you know, quote unquote secret for the Hulk. And I totally get her fighting hard to get a degree to get seen in your career and have a bunch of student loans being a huge motivator to get it together and get it together quickly so that you can go back and pay those loans off. I feel you, girl. <laughs> um, this may be a bit of a spoiler for a guest star, um, but it has been everywhere, so hopefully this is okay. But I absolutely loved the Daredevil inclusion, and I'm so incredibly stoked to see him come back. Uh, I loved him, and I loved the Netflix show. I was really sad when it was canceled, so I was just so excited to see him in this, and I really loved all the parts that he was in. Also, they were like super cute together, and I totally showed them 100%. Uh, but yeah, I think they did a really good job in that episode of mixing the Daredevil kind of darkness with the She-Hulk lightheartedness, especially that scene when they're on top of the roof with like the lily pad neon sign behind them. Oh my god, that was like, that was like straight out of a scene in uh, Daredevil. Like, it was perfect, but it still had like the lightheartedness of She-Hulk. So it was really good, and I really liked uh, the way that they kind of blended the two very different tones together. It was such a good crossover. Uh, the only critique I have, and this may be actually more comic book related, um, since, you know, that's where this is based off of, uh, but anyway, it kind of annoyed me that She-Hulk's hair is, like, super different when she turns to She-Hulk from Jennifer Walters. And more than that, it's this, like, gentle, stylized wave that it gets turned into. Jennifer Walters' curls are freaking gorgeous. I love them. And I really wish She-Hulk's, for lack of a better term, glow-up didn't include taking away her curls. 
I mean, let's have some more curly-haired love in TV and movies and books and pop culture because we are here for it. We are here for the curls. And yet she gets turned into this woman who the entire show she's battling her kind of self-confidence of uh, people only maybe want me for my she-hulkness. And of course that she-hulk has slick, not frizzy, slight waves like a blowout, I think is what people refer that as. I don't know. It was just, it's a little disappointing that she couldn't also have curly hair, which may be a, a comic thing that they're just copying, but still makes me a little sad for my own curls because I can never make them look very nice, <laughs> even after trying for so much. But anyway, definitely excited for where She-Hulk's going to be going, especially if uh, Daredevil you know, if if that still happens, I'm pretty sure Daredevil's supposed to get a movie, so if they make that a thing and a crossover thing and she pops up in there, that would be really fun to see how her lightheartedness plays on the very dark part of, you know, the actual Daredevil series. That would be interesting. And also, if Deadpool comes to the MCU and they get to team up, oh man, that would be great. They would be talking to each other's audiences. Ugh. Oh. I, I think I need to scour Marvel Unlimited to see if I can find some crossovers of them in the comics to hold me over. Because <laughs> I don't know if that would ever happen, but uh, I'm sure it's hilarious. Uh, so I haven't quite actually finished uh, this one yet, uh, but I'm in the last season of it, and that is Breaking Bad. So this isn't going to be like a whole thing about it, but if out of everything I'm kind of rewatching or watching right now, this is the only really kind of other one that I have some things to say about. Uh, I kind of have been watching that One of Us is Lying show on Peacock, and it's alright. And I've been re-watching Community, which I think I could actually do a whole episode about because I love Community, and now they're doing a reboot, and I'm so excited about it. Um, and I could probably talk about Julian the Phantoms again. But instead, I think I'm just going to talk about Breaking Bad. So I was really late to the Breaking Bad party. <laughs> I don't know why, uh, but I guess it just kind of never interested me. Uh, I loved Brian Cranston from Malcolm in the Middle. Also, Malcolm in the Middle is going to like have a reboot that Brian Cranston is writing? Oh boy, this is going to be a good year coming up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I still just kind of never checked it out. And then a couple years ago, Steven tried to get me to watch it. We watched, I believe, the entire first season. I don't think we started the second. And I was just kind of like, eh, about it. I couldn't I couldn't get into it. So we ended up switching to something else. That might have been when we started watching Naruto instead. Or or something like that. Um, I don't know. It would have been maybe Avatar first. Anyway, uh, we started watching it again. We picked back up because uh, he was like, man, you really got to watch it because it's really good. So I was like, okay, I'll give it another shot. And I finally realized why I think it took me so long to get into the show, why even watching the entire first episode or first season, I still couldn't get into it. It was just hard for me to watch. And I'll, you know, what? I'll explain it just in a moment. Because first, let me say that now that I'm in the middle of the last season, I, I really am enjoying it immensely. The storyline has gotten wild, but in the best kind of way, and I really have liked where the show has gone over the past five seasons. Everything really kind of falls after the other. The events make sense and how they kind of snowball and expand and 
get crazier and crazier. Um, but I've hated all of the characters, <laughs> except for Jesse and Walt Jr. Uh, and this is, I think, the biggest reason that it was just so hard to watch for me. Because each episode, I just hated everybody, and it was really hard to root for anyone except for Jesse, and I don't know how you can really root for Walt Jr. But, like, I didn't really care about anyone else. I thought they were all terrible people, and it was really hard for me to watch a show where I just couldn't be very emotionally invested in a large portion of the characters in the show. Um, and it wasn't until probably about season four, it might have been slightly before that, when I finally actually started to like some of the other characters, and then it didn't feel so depressing, it didn't feel so hard to watch. There were others that were, you know, that I always kind of wrapped up in, and there were others that I wanted to succeed, and it finally felt like I was watching a show where I could kind of breathe, <laughs> and it was just making it a lot more enjoyable for me. Uh, and honestly, the storyline just gets crazier and crazier, which also draws you in. And of course, that isn't to say that it was a bad show before the fourth season, because it really wasn't. It's an amazing show, the entirety of it. Well, at least up until whatever episode I'm on in the last season. <laughs> but Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul are just amazing actors. How Cranston went from Malcolm's dad to the dude who makes meth and gets involved with criminals, it's truly amazing. Cranston got me to hate him so freaking much, which is really just a testament to his acting. He absolutely made me forget that he was Hal and he had ever been Hal, and I very much believe that he was Walt. Walt's transformation paralleled with Jesse's throughout the course of the show is truly mesmerizing. Two men with quite different upbringings and support systems who ha then have all of the same experiences together and yet have two completely different journeys because of it. I really love the way that the writers have shown that, you know, the path that both of them take and how each character chooses to move forward while they started kind of on the same path and they continued on the same path for quite a while. I honestly thought I'd watch the show and move on, just kind of, you know, give it a chance for my husband. But I, I really did not expect to get so wrapped up in the story. You know, it's kind of like Naruto. <laughs> At first, it was really hard to watch, but it lays such an important foundation for the rest of the show that upon reflection, that's when you realize its true brilliance. I'm really excited to continue, and I honestly don't know how it's going to end, and I'm a bit nervous. Uh, we'll have to watch the movie next, and maybe we'll even get to check out Better Call Saul. Alright, so up next is movies. I watched both of these movies back to back on the plane back from London Airport uh, from Heathrow, so let's start with the first one that I watched, Firestarter. Now, did I watch this movie solely because Zac Efron was in it? No. I mean, mostly, yes, but not entirely. <laughs> Uh, it also just kind of seemed interesting. I hadn't heard much about it, and while I did watch the trailer at some point, I didn't really remember anything about it other than the little girl could start fires. So, I was like, sure, why not? I'll check it out on this plane. Sounds like a great place to watch fires. Uh, the movie was nothing like I could have imagined it to be. I think I mean that in a good way, but I'm still not sure. 
it definitely had some kind of indie film vibes to it, which it is Bloomhouse, so maybe that explains it. Um, the opening was really interesting, as there's like no dialogue for quite a bit of it. But it's a big, big scene, then there's no dialogue in any of it. Uh, it's odd, but maybe not in a bad way. Overall, I think I enjoyed the movie, though I don't think it's one I'd rewatch. Which I guess is kind of an odd critique, because there are plenty of movies that I really did enjoy, but that doesn't mean that I'd rewatch them, you know? But this movie was good, I think, but it also felt a bit rushed at times, perhaps because this was a shorter film than we're used to nowadays with everything being two hours, but this movie was, according to IMDb, an hour and 34 minutes, which is fairly typical still of like romantic comedies and lighter films, but this one probably could have benefited with a slightly longer runtime. Kind of felt like the first draft. <laughs> pun, no pun intended, because fire and draft. Anyway, um, felt like maybe the first draft or perhaps a few drafts in of the film, but maybe not quite the final draft. I mean, Efron's last name in the film was McGee, which is a total fake name, right? So, like, oh yeah, I'm Bobby McGee. That's a fake name if you've ever heard one. So it really didn't surprise me to find out when it was indeed a fake name, although this was a, like, an actual story from Stephen King, so I, I would assume that McGee came from there, but and no one's going to question Stephen King's writing, even if the person who's the editor is like, you're really going to go with McGee here? All right, <laughs> that's your choice, Mr. King. Um, who knows? And maybe he was doing a lot of cocaine at that point, so... He may not even remember writing this one either. Anyway, there's also a part where the young girl, Charlie, played by Ryan Kira Armstrong, I believe is her name, um, who did a great job. She was supposed to find some, like, top secret facility, and she found it, like, super easily. Like, I don't know if it was partly because she was being pulled there, but she was just instantly there with, like, barely even looking for it. She just asked these dudes, like, hey, where's where's the ocean and then she just found it <laughs> and then when she gets to this facility there's literally one security guy looking at like two screens with maybe 12 cameras all together or something like that's a little under secure for this top secret facility that has like powered people or doing weird experiments on people you know I don't know and then I mean maybe it's because it had such a small budget that I couldn't get like a lot more actors or extras I'm not sure. It just felt like something was missing the whole time I was watching the film, and maybe that was just other people. I don't know. There's also this scene with a cat that I literally... Oh my god, there's so many scams calls to call me. Like, I, I don't need you to tell me who's, who to vote for. It's okay. Please leave me alone. Um. Anyway, so there's a cat scene... And I had to literally turn away and take my earphones out and hold on to my husband next to me. Because it was really rough. And if you've seen the movie, you know exactly the scene I'm talking about. And it, it's not necessarily a critique of the film. Because, like, I get why you include it and I get whatever. But I personally really hated, hated it. I hated that scene. Um, and maybe it hit even harder because I hadn't seen my own cat in two weeks. And I missed him like crazy. But yeah, it was just, it was really rough, and I, I genuinely had to take my earbuds out because I couldn't even listen to it, and I had to look away, and then my husband looked at me, looked at the screen, and immediately knew why I was looking away. 
because uh, it was horrific. Not a fan. <laughs> uh, the ending was also a bit odd. I didn't quite understand the, like, literally the last scene. I mean, I, I get what was happening, but I don't think I get why it was happening. It was an interesting end, I guess. And I didn't really do this for everything else so far, mostly because I think you can get that I totally would recommend everything I've talked about today. But I think I would recommend this movie, maybe, if like you like Stephen King a lot and you're into weird, uncomfortable indie films. Um, maybe you wouldn't feel the same as me if you watched it and that's your thing. Uh, and also maybe if I was expecting it to be like this weird film, I wouldn't necessarily have the feelings I have about it because it didn't seem to be pushed as like a film like that. I thought it would be more like sci-fi fantasy thriller with like fire starting abilities mixed in. I don't know. I just, I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's, it's Stephen King and he's made some weird freaking stories and weird adaptations. Uh, if you've seen it, let me know what you think on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're, you know, my friends or my brother who listens, uh, text me. <laughs> let me know your thoughts, because I don't know about that one. Speaking of a weird indie film, Everything Everywhere All at Once is what we'll be talking about next. Except I think this is one where they did it really, really well. First, I really loved the opening of this movie. It was really making me feel like everything everywhere was happening all at once. I felt anxious. I felt like things needed to be done. You know, like I felt um, bad for the main character, for Michelle Yeoh. I thought, yeah, like it was very hectic. Uh, and I felt like we had super long takes, even though we didn't have to have super long takes. But it really felt continuous and it made me very anxious for sure. I think they did really well uh, with the mixing of the Chinese, uh, not sure which dialect, if it's Mandarin, Cantonese, or something else, uh, but with mixing that and the English together, with parts needing subtitles and other parts not. At first, I will admit it was a little confusing, uh, but I was on an airplane and I was still kind of settling into the movie. Uh, but once I was paying attention and I was able to turn subtitles on because I honestly can't watch anything without subtitles, especially in a more chaotic environment, uh, it was really great and I really liked that mixture and it felt very authentic. Everything about this movie was really just amazingly done. I loved the soundtrack, I loved all the camera angles and the way that it flowed, uh, the martial arts, the dialogue, it was just, it was really, really good. I really like that it broke it into three parts, um, and I thought, again, just, uh, just everything was really well done. And to, you know, just add to the movie, I think every single person in this movie did such a great job. I think there's some sirens outside right now. Um, Michelle Yeoh was phenomenal, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kihi Kwan, who, who, you know, of course was the little boy in the Indiana Jones movie, and this is his, you know, kind of... Uh, first film back after many years away, and he was amazing. Uh, Stephanie Sue, she was amazing. It's just everybody was so freaking good. Um, <laughs> and I can't, <laughs> I just, I'm gushing, but it really was a phenomenal film. 
Uh, it was just the perfect mix of things being way, way ridiculously silly, while also on the other end being incredibly serious and important. Try not to give it away too much, and this is probably definitely a spoiler, but Evelyn and Joy talking across the dimensions, especially in that freaking rock one, um, was really just the perfect blend of humor and emotion. I was sobbing on an airplane holding my husband's hand during it. Okay, so maybe not sobbing, more like silently crying. <laughs> but still, it was such an impactful scene, yet it was being played out across multiple silly places and events. And Ragakuni was hilarious, and yet it didn't diminish the impact of these scenes. Also, apparently that was Randy freaking Newman playing Ragakuni, and that is just freaking amazing. <laughs> I was genuinely taken aback by how good this movie was. I was not expecting it. I had heard some good things, but I really just did not know to what extent. It was somehow surreal, but deep. It was just the perfect amount of humor, of sadness, profoundness, and everything else. I have nothing bad to say about this film. I think it was somehow a, you know, B.A. action superhero martial arts film while also a very touching film about an immigrant mother's relationship with her daughter. Somehow not only do they exist simultaneously, but it's so well done that I don't think it could ever be done again because nothing would ever compare to it. I 100% recommend this movie and I actually really want to watch it again. And there you have it. Those are my thoughts on the books Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan, This Poison Heart by Kaylin Bayron, the TV show She-Hulk and Breaking Bad, and finally the movies Firestarter and Everything Everywhere all at once. Thank you so much for joining me on this special, very long season finale. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Mixed Media Reviews Podcast. Please leave me a comment to let me know if you agreed, disagreed, or if you have any suggestions for the upcoming season. You can also find me anywhere you find your podcasts, probably. I'll be taking a break until January 7th, 2023. As I said, this is the end of season two. I'll certainly be using the time to study for exams, but I may pop on every once in a while if there's something I read or watch that I just can't wait to tell you all about. Thank you so much for listening to this season. I really appreciate you hanging in there, and I am so excited for the next. Have a wonderful rest of the day, and I hope your holidays are wonderful. Bye!